Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10 through verse 17. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men, I no doubt believe, is a miracle that you are not only familiar with, you have probably taught it in Sunday school classes, you have probably heard multiple sermons about it. It is a very famous miracle. As a matter of fact, if you take out or uh, remove or move it out of the group of miracles, the incarnation, the greatest miracle, God himself becoming man, and you take out the miracle of the atonement of God satisfying what we owe, if you take those miracles out, The miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 is the only miracle found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, typically when this uh, uh, event, this miraculous event is is looked at and and preached and dealt with, there's, there's all sorts of thoughts and ideas that are addressed from the standpoint of uh, 12 basketfuls being left over, one for each disciple, or questions concerning uh, where exactly is Bethsaida, and was this in a desert place, or or was it just right next to the town, or where where exactly did this occur? Those are issues that come up. Uh, Questions concerning the actual number of people. The scriptures reference 5,000 men. Uh, Much debate goes around, was there women and children also? And if so, could it have been a crowd of of 10,000 or 15,000 or more that uh, was present there? In the Gospel of John, there's uh, one section of the Scripture that references after Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And he had to, to stop that. Uh, That's dealt with and and looked at. Um, Now, all of those issues, all of those questions are certainly legitimate and important and to some degree fascinating. But tonight, I don't want to focus on any of that. Really, my main focus tonight is not even so much on the multiplication of five loaves and two fish. I want us to focus on 
the disciples themselves and the interaction that Jesus has with the disciples. When we first begin looking at at this account, we read in verse 10 a statement that demands a question. Look with me in verse 10. It says, When the apostles returned. Well, hopefully you ask the question, returned from where? Where had they been? They had been sent out, commissioned by Jesus, given authority and responsibility by Jesus to move off into the villages in the surrounding countryside and to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. They, in essence, had just been sent out as ambassadors, as representatives of Christ, and they were doing what Christ does. Look with me in verse uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. It is that that they have just returned from. And I believe that begins to set the context for what we see happen in this miraculous event. Now, Luke does not give us many details concerning what they had just experienced. He doesn't tell us a lot except that they were sent out to do that. However, the same uh, section in Mark gives another detail. Don't turn there, but it's Mark chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Listen to what Mark reports. It's the same scenario. They've been sent out as ambassadors of Christ. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, what we learn from that is that the disciples who had been sent out as ambassadors for Christ were successful in their mission. Think about these men for a moment. Fishermen, sort of your uneducated plain guys. Uh, And all of a sudden now, they are out in towns and villages proclaiming that the Messiah had come, healing the sick and casting out demons just as we see Jesus do that. Now, Luke also does not give us any information concerning when they did come back and they returned to Jesus um, and then they reported to Jesus. He doesn't give us any information about uh, the manner in which the disciples are reporting their success. However, we do find information in Luke about a similar scenario. Flip over to Luke chapter 10 for just a second. In this section of Luke, in chapter 10, Jesus commissions 72 disciples to go out. Very similar commission. And in verse 17, Luke reports how they come back and report to Jesus. Look what verse 17 says. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, 
even the demons submit to us in your name. Now the odds are the 12 disciples returned in a very similar fashion as the 72. We know they had been sent out with the same task. We know they were successful in their task. And like any of us, they're going to return full of joy, full of excitement, full of enthusiasm. As a matter of fact, I I get a picture in my head when I think about this scene. I I picture an an eighth-grade basketball team, and they've they've just won a big game. Maybe it's a regional championship or something. And um, they're in the locker room, and the coach walks in, and all these eighth graders are going to be uncharacteristically talking nonstop, telling the coach, did you see that play? Could you believe what Frank did? Da, da, da. Jeff, you probably experienced that somewhat, haven't you? Um, they're going to be excited. They're going to be enthusiastic. They're going to be recounting and retelling and all weekend long. They're going to be the big men on campus. That's very natural. Matter of fact, we can relate to that. We can relate to being excited and enthusiastic and full of joy when we've had the privilege of maybe in a in, in a relationship where we've ministered to somebody or on a missions trip or an involvement with some community agency uh, where we've had the privilege and the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to, to give biblical counsel. We get excited when we've seen success in ministry. That's, that's normal. Well, undoubtedly, the disciples are in the exact same boat. They have returned from being ambassadors for Christ. They've seen success in ministry, and they are full of enthusiasm and joy and excitement and they're recounting all that they've done to Jesus. We could certainly call probably what they're experiencing a mountaintop spiritual experience. It's a phrase, a a lingo that we use in our culture. Now keep that in mind, and I want to present a thought to you that is not 100% of the time true, but a great deal of the time is true. Success breeds overconfidence. Success breeds overconfidence. Let me try and illustrate that idea in an extreme. Um, Anybody in here ever dreamed about climbing Mount Everest? Ashley, you ever dreamed? I thought Ashley dreamed about that. Um, Mount Everest, according to the land masses above sea level, Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. Uh, 8,400 and something odd meters or over 29,000 and some change in feet. Um, Since 1922, until about the data I found was 2004, 2005, there's been well over 2,200 summit attempts on Mount Everest. Of those 2,200 or over 2,200 summit attempts, um, close to 200 deaths have occurred. Now, if you do the math, that's somewhere between 8.5% and a 9% death rate for trying to get to the top of Mount Everest. 
1922 in modern day uh, record keeping was the first year an attempt was made, and it was unsuccessful. It wasn't until, I want to say it's 54 or 56, Hillary and anyway, some other guy actually made the summit. Um, and from then on, success has breeded overconfidence. Did you know that, that uh, from 1922 until 1969, there were 24 summit attempts? From 1970 to 2004, they were over 2,000 or about 2,225. Notice the exponential growth that's been occurring there. Um, nowadays, it's all about how fast can you do it without oxygen, how old you are. Actually, May of this year, the oldest man summited uh, Mount Everest. He beat the last oldest guy. Uh, a few years back, it was a Japanese man. He was 71. Just a few months ago, a 76-year-old man summited Mount Everest. Um, there's actually a club. Actually, you may have known this. Maybe some of the rest of you did too. There's actually a club. It's called the 8,000ers. There's apparently 10 peaks over 8,000 meters. And um, there's lists. You can find them on the Internet of who's actually done all 8,000. Who's done four of them in six months? Or who's done this? Or without oxygen? Or... Confident, I mean, excuse me, success breeds overconfidence. There's pushing a 10% death rate, and yet we got people spending large quantities of money to get to the top of a big hill. Now, certainly, that's an accomplishment. But from the standpoint of all eternity, so what? Is it worth your life? In 1996, because of all the numbers of people trying to go, they had 15 deaths in one summit attempt. It's called a catastrophe. There apparently are pushing 200 bodies up there on the top of Everest because once you die, nobody's getting you down. There's been all these ethical dilemmas because uh, people are going up to the summit and you've got a small window to get there and somebody's struggling and they're like, see ya. Uh, Success breeds overconfidence. To me, Everest is an extreme illustration of us. We can conquer anything. If man puts his mind to it, we can defeat any problem we have. We can handle the global warming or the energy this or... Success breeds overconfidence. We as people tend to rely upon ourselves when scripturally we are instructed to be very different. Uh, think for a moment uh, about some of, the, some of the instructions we find in, uh, in the scriptures. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in who? With what? And lean on what? Not Don't lean on what? That's a biblical concept. We are to rely upon God himself. Not us. And yet, what happens? Success breeds overconfidence. Look what we have done. Look what I can accomplish. I'm convinced that I wouldn't go so far as to say the main, 
But a serious aspect of this miracle event, it's not about feeding 5,000 people. It's not about stamping out hunger. It's about a Savior who is committed to maintaining in His disciples a confidence in Him. That's what I think Jesus is really about here. He knows His disciples. He knows the frailty of man. He knows that success can breed overconfidence. And Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, who has the perfect understanding, an eternal understanding, is committed to maintaining his disciples' confidence in him, not themselves, not their success. Oh, he wants them to be successful. He made them successful. But he does not want that, to, that, that success to shift over into idolatry where they begin to rely upon themselves and begin to neglect their Savior. Uh, what is it that Luther said? The heart is an idol factory. And I believe in this, in this miraculous event, what we see is Jesus doing two things to maintain the disciples' confidence in Him. And I want to point these two things out and and help us grasp them. And then I want us to look at how those same two things can be of a benefit to us today. The first thing that we see Jesus doing in order to maintain the disciples' confidence in Him is Jesus creates a dilemma for them. Look with me, if you will, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 9. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. Verse 13, He replied, You give them something to eat. Now, In the Gospel of John, we find a slight different focus on some details. Let me read that to you. Listen to this. In John chapter 6, verse 5, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus creates a dilemma for his disciples. He purposely asks a question and places them in a scenario to create a dilemma. You give them something to eat. You solve this huge, insurmountable, gargantuan problem of where in the middle of nowhere, are you going to get food to feed at least 5,000, if not 10,000 or 15,000 people? Now that, that forces us to come to a question. Why? 
Why is Jesus creating a dilemma for the disciples? Why is he testing them? Well, I think our context answers that. It's because Jesus knows that success breeds overconfidence. The whole, the whole section starts out telling us this huge piece of information when the, the apostles returned. Jesus is hearing them and listening to them and they're chattering away about, oh, and the demons just fled in front of us, Jesus. It was amazing. Man, we showed them. It was incredible, Jesus. I put my hand on his head and voila, they were healed. We preached and a thousand people believed. I'm telling you, it was great. Can we go back? And I think Jesus begins to see something in his disciples. And so out of his shepherding heart, out of his love and commitment for his people, out of his perfect understanding, out of his sovereign grace, he creates a dilemma. He creates a scenario to once again encourage and generate and drive his disciples back to the place where all of us need to be. And that's at the feet of Jesus. Understanding that every breath that enters and exits our lungs is a sign of his hand on us. All things are for Him, from Him, to Him, through Him. My brother and sister in Christ, I suspect you're like me. I neglect and I forget and I abandon that reality time and time again. I begin to think that Jonathan Todd has got some really good ideas in his head. I begin to think that Jonathan Todd... um, has been there, done that, knows what to do. And can there be a bigger lie? Why did we wake up today? Because the God who spoke a word and created this universe from the very beginning determined that you would have this day. We are utterly and dependently in reliance upon our Savior. So oftentimes we just think, yeah, I've got forgiveness, but everything else I've done myself. Matter of fact, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Look what I've accomplished and built and done. No. Everything we have is from the hand of God. Jesus creates a dilemma because he is the good shepherd and he knows what his sheep need. Um, go back to that, that picture of this junior high basketball team that just won the big, the big game Friday night. Practice happens Monday and they come strutting in. What do you think a good coach will do? He's not going to, he's not going to take away their excitement but he's going to get them refocused on the fundamentals. He's going to say, Son, pick the pace up. You're getting slow. Let's go. Let me see those drills. Whatever. He'll know all the names. Jeff would know all the names for that. I don't. 
But that's what a good coach is going to do. He's going to get them focused back on reality. And the reality is they got another game coming up Friday night, and it's time to prepare. Jesus creates a dilemma to focus his disciples back on reality, and the reality is without Christ, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no power. We have no ability. It is by his grace that all things occur. And that is a, is a message that we must hear. Whether you are in the middle of trying to make a business decision, whether you're in the middle of trying to raise children, whether you're in the middle of dealing with some, some bad medical news, whatever the scenario is, we need to be reminded that in Christ we have everything and outside of Christ we have nothing. That's the reality. And yet, us grand Americans are so successful that we breed and reproduce and multiply over confidence again and again and again. Let us not breed over confidence. Let us remember that in Christ is our hope. Now let me make some application for us here today, July 30th, 2008. I hear terms left and right, economic downturn, mortgage crisis, um, stock market's down, stock market's up, stock market's down and down and down and up and down. Gas prices are higher, everything's costing more, inflation, recession. We're not in a recession. We are in a recession. We hear that all the time. Naturally, that's going to generate concern and fear and anxiety and worry. My brother and sister in Christ, do you think that the dilemma that our economic situation country is facing right now is outside the sovereign control of the one who spoke a word and flung the stars into heaven? Do you think that King Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, has forgotten how many hairs you have on your head? My brother and sister in Christ... He knows the sparrows when they fall. He knows, he knows, he knows. And by no means do I want to say that the seriousness and the difficulties that arise from an economic downturn are petty. They're not. They are very serious. And as a side note, they provide the opportunity for the church to be the church for the church to care for one another, for the church to extend. But he knows, and it is serious, but it also throws us right back to where we need to be, which is on our faces, thanking and begging and relying on King Jesus. That, my brother and sister in Christ, is a mentality that will shock and awe the culture around us. When everybody is in a frantic, fear, 
when there is a peace that does not fit the scenario. And I'm not saying pain-free at all. There will be pain. I mean, if, if what you see and what, what is occurring in the economy is true, we're all going to have to tighten our belt and won't do as much, and there'll be catastrophe within the Christian community. But let us not forget that King Jesus is aware of it. And let us not forget that the good shepherd who has the perfect perspective and has an eternal focus is developing in us what brings him the most glory and the most joy and what he will use to expand his kingdom. Now, we may not like the way he does it, but let us not forget what he does. Jesus creates dilemmas to maintain in his disciples a confidence in him. Secondly, in order to maintain his disciples' confidence in him, Jesus demonstrates his lordship. Now, this is the part of the miracle we all know. What does he do? He takes these five loaves and these two fish. And whether or not he sits there and breaks them into chunks for, I don't know, the eight hours it would take to produce enough chunks to satisfy five, ten, fifteen thousand people, I don't know. Whether or not he prays and you look up and there's a pile of fish 20 feet high, I don't know. The scriptures don't say. But he demonstrates that he is Lord, not just over salvation, but he is Lord over the entire material universe. He takes what is in small quantity and makes it into large quantity. So much so to the point where it says they all ate and were satisfied. Now, I watch some of you guys around here when you eat on a Wednesday night, and um, I see the two, three, four trips, and then you're picking off your kids. I see that. Some of us have very large appetites. I know I'm one of those type people, especially when it comes to Butterfinger, one of the Butterfinger cakes she had tonight or whatever. I was trying to con my daughters out of theirs, but anyway. Um, to satisfy and have 12 basketfuls left over. Now, the Scriptures don't say exactly the message he was trying to say, but I'll guarantee you one of the things he says is, I am Lord. I control all of the universe. You want these two fish to be 20,000 fish? 40,000 fish? Okay. They will be. Let me paint a picture for you all of what um, comes to my mind when I think about um, maintaining a confidence in Jesus. And this to me is, is the picture where I pray I will be today and I pray God will put me there again tomorrow. And I pray we as a church will be. Um, four or five, six weeks ago, I made a trip with my wife and my three daughters and my mother and my father to see my last remaining grandmother. Um, she's about to turn 90 in a few weeks. And um, I, I had not been a good grandson. It had been 
Five years since I'd seen her. Um, yes, slap my wrist. Um, she lives in Sanford, North Carolina, which is south of Raleigh-Durham. That's where my parents come from. I've never lived in the state of North Carolina, and the closest I've ever lived to my grandmother is here. Um, in growing up years, I was West Coast and Chicago and uh, other places, but never lived near them. So uh, uh, it, it was time. I needed to go. So um, there's never a good time to make a 14-hour drive, but um, my mother, my father, myself, my wife, and my 11-, 9-, and 6-year-old daughter climbed into one vehicle. We left at 4 a.m. Uh, one morning, and we drove straight there. Side note, I'm very proud. My father was the one that had to stop and go to the bathroom most of the time, not my children. It was kind of funny. We had a good laugh about that. He finally said, oh, i got to sit down and have some lunch because I've been telling my kids, grab a snack, go. We're in the car. You know, We had it all planned out. Um, I also got to say, my daughters did amazing. I was very impressed with them because we drove straight there, spent a day and a half, and drove straight back. Um, yeah, shoot me next time I start talking about that. But anyway, my grandmother um, is a spunky lady. Um, she, uh, she always maintains a, a good attitude. Um, she speaks to everybody in the nursing home and She's had multiple mini strokes and um, uh, has a weak right side and is really kind of hunched over and basically is in a rocking chair or a wheelchair. And, um, uh, you know, we'd wheel her around the nursing home and then we'd, we'd, we'd get her back to her uh, recliner. Now, she's spunky and she still wants to do as much as she can do. Um, she, wants, she wants to try. She hadn't given up on anything. Um, and I watched her one time move herself from the wheelchair to her recliner. And this is about a five-minute process. She has you get her wheelchair right where she wants it in front of the recliner. She gets the things locked down. She gets her hands on the side of that recliner. And you kind of see her begin to psych herself up. And she gets herself up. And then in an out-of-tune, scratchy, horrible-sounding voice. She starts singing, Have faith in God! Have faith in God! And whatever the rest of this hymn is. And she's just sitting there, singing it, singing it, and then she makes that daring move and down to the recliner. And I watched her do this. And she looked up at me and she wiped the drool from her mouth because she's lost some of the muscles and so she drools a bit. And she's got this grin, and she says, every time I sing that, he gets me in my chair. What a blessed place to be. What a horrible place to be. But what a blessed place to be. That woman, Evelyn Watson, understands her reliance upon Jesus. She ain't fooling anybody about nothing. She knows that she ain't got squat. She can't do anything. And she is desperately screaming out to her Savior to get her from the wheelchair to the rocking chair. And that, my brother and sister in Christ, is the place we are to be moment by moment and day by day. From one perspective, we perceive ourselves to be, oh, so much more blessed than her. But from another perspective, 
I think she's the more blessed. I think she knows reality in a manner that in a lot of ways we, because of our success and the overconfidence that it breeds, we live in a fantasy world. We think we think we're God. We live by grace, moment by moment by moment. And our good shepherd loves us so much that he will create dilemmas for us to remind us of that. And he loves us so much, he will demonstrate his lordship over all to us. He did it in this miracle. And there are ways in our own lives where we've tasted of His Lordship. In this economic downturn, I pray that He will raise up men and women and children who have an increased faith in Him and not just an intellectual faith, faith, an, an, an experiential faith, whereby we see the hand of God demonstrating His Lordship over all. God has given us, not a Jesus who right now is on this earth making a bunch of fish and bread multiply, but He's told us about those things. But each one of us also, I guarantee you, have stories and examples and events whereby His Lordship has been demonstrated clearly in our lives. I had a conversation tonight about that, the hand of God. The question is, do we see reality? Or do we live in a fantasy world? Um, for almost five years, I was a drug and alcohol counselor uh, at a ministry called Second Chance. It's no longer in existence, but it used to be one of the community mission, a- mission agencies that Grace supported. And I had the privilege of working under Scotty Cassidy, the director of the program, and his wife, Jean Cassidy. And I learned something from Jean. Jean used to always say, having trouble seeing God's hand in your life today? Take a breath. There it is. There's the hand of God. Concrete evidence of His hand on your life. Every breath we take. My brother and sister in Christ, remember, Jesus creates dilemmas because He loves us. And He's molding us and shaping us. And He demonstrates His Lordship again and again and again to keep us in reality. He is King. He is Creator. He is Sustainer. Not us. Let me pray. Father, we confess that so oftentimes we worship ourselves. So oftentimes, Father, we allow the success that you have given us to breed over confidence in us. Oh, forgive us. And Father, we beg that you would take dilemmas and you would take examples of your lordship 
and so produce and prune and grow in us a faith that relies upon you. May our confidence be placed on you and no place else. And from that, Father, may you receive tremendous glory, tremendous worship out of your people. And would you give us the privilege of being used to proclaim to a pagan culture the beauty and majesty and lordship of King Jesus. Father, we do ask that you would take your word and you would not only pierce our minds, but cut our hearts. Go with us this evening. And Father, would you continue to demonstrate your lordship in our lives. It is by the blood of Jesus that we pray. Amen.